Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, welcome to the Gospel for Life. Today we are continuing our series on the 400th year anniversary of the Synod of Dort, and perhaps many of you don't even know what that means. Um, I certainly didn't until I started studying it. So brothers, can you bring us up to speed real quick what this historical event was? It's an event um, in the early 1600s that really dealt with uh, a theological debate that was going on in the Reformed world. Um, so at this time, the Reformed Church was dominant in the Netherlands, um, and one of the pastors that was studied under Calvin's student, Beza, began to undermine the teaching of the Belgic and Heidelberg Catechism and especially dealing with how does God save sinners. And he, in essence, to boil it down into a very simplistic sense, is he was teaching that man cooperates with God and man is um, highly involved in their own salvation, which would go against what had been taught and held by the church in the Netherlands for over 50 years, um, from the signing of the Belgic and then the, the adopting of the, of the Heidelberg Catechism. And and by the way, the um, the theologians who came together uh, at Dortrecht for the synod uh, were not just from the Netherlands, although although the majority were, uh, they came from all around, uh, all, all throughout Europe, uh, the Reformed Church. Uh, there were Swiss representatives. Uh, there was a, a significant contingent from England. There were eighty four members, and there were actually eighteen secular commissioners as well. Yeah, yeah. So we think of it as a we think of it as a, a Dutch uh, confession, uh, but it wasn't just the Dutch. It wasn't it wasn't just the people the, the Holland. It was representatives from around the Reformed Church all over Europe. Okay, so those canons uh, were then later popularized in an acrostic uh, called Tulip T U L I P. Um, we've been looking at total depravity. That's the T in Tulip. The last couple of days. And maybe just to quickly summarize what total depravity means, total depravity means that not only is mankind, fallen mankind, guilty um, before God, they are also unable to come to God on their own because their understanding, their will, and their affection are all dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says. And brothers, I I thought of this illustration about the madness of sin. Um, Just yesterday, I was reading in in, uh, a book Do you realize that after the angels struck the men of Sodom with blindness, they were still groping after Lot's door? Mm -hmm. I mean, for those of you who are familiar with the story, that's that's insane. Here, judgment is falling upon the city, and they're still trying to press into their sin. And that's exactly what total depravity has done to us. It's not only made us selfish, but it's made us hate our brothers, hate our fellow man, and hate God. Okay, so the second letter now in this acrostic is the U. It stands for unconditional election. 
So what does that mean, and what does it not mean? Well, it's a response, first of all, to the, the teaching of the Remonstrants, which was conditional election, and they believe that um, those that were depraved, those that were born as sinners, um, God looked down the corridors of time and, and saw those that were going to believe in Christ. And based upon foreseen faith, God elected them to salvation. So he saw something in those humans that they were going to exercise their free will, that little bit of goodness still that remained, um, and that they would they would then put their faith in Christ, and therefore then God elected them, chose them. Um, so that's conditional election. Um, that would go against the teaching, I believe, of the Bible. It it's goes, like reactionary election. It's reactionary. It, it would do injustice to the term election. Right. Election means to choose, to choose to, se- to select out, um, not based upon criteria, but on the freedom of the chooser. Yeah, let me read directly from uh, Dort Article 9. This same election took place not on the basis of foreseen faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, or any other good quality and disposition, as though it were based on a prerequisite cause or condition in the person to be chosen, but rather for the purpose of faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, and so on. Accordingly, election is the source of every saving good. Faith, holiness, and the other saving gifts and, the la- and at last eternal life itself, flow forth from election as its fruits and effects. In other words, not based on any foreseen faith or good that God saw in us, period. And the scripture behind that, of course, um, Phil, is uh, from Romans 9, right. where Paul is arguing for God's sovereign choice and election, and he picks up in verse 11, where he's speaking about Jacob and Esau. And so he specifically says, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So in other words, Paul's setting up the argument that he's not looking at anything that they're doing. They weren't even born yet. He wasn't looking down through the quarters of time. He wasn't taking into consideration their goodness or their badness. And then Paul continues, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then he makes this very hard statement in verse 13, which I know some of our listeners are going to react very adversely, where he says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Now let's just pause there. How does that hit you? (laughs) Because I I know the way that it hits me, I, I cringe, and I'm like, how could God, you know, hate anybody? But that's before we even define what hate means, that totally misses what Paul's even getting at. The real thing is, is why could, why could God even love Jacob? Right. Jacob was just as bad as Esau. This is why we talked about total depravity first, because mankind is that corrupt, that evil, that hating of God, and yet God chose to love Jacob. Why would God ever choose to love Jacob? That doesn't even make sense. In, in fact, when you read the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau is the more appealing figure of the two. <laughs> yeah. if he's it, the manly man. He, he's the manly man, and he's the victim. He's the one that gets shafted. 
by his by his brother. You know, if 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 it was up to me, you know, if if I was if I was choosing based on which character I like, right? You know, I'd pick Esau every time. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we want it to be unfair. Um, we want to accuse God of being unfair, yes. and that's really the the response that Paul addresses in these chapters. Now, sometimes we have people will say, "Well, I don't believe in election. I don't think it's right." Well, the fact of the matter is, every Christian has to believe in election because the Bible uses the term um, quite quite often. Right. So we have to believe something. You can't. Anybody that says, well, I don't believe in election, just hasn't, quite honestly, hasn't read their Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you have to believe something about election because the word is used. It's a biblical word. So now, now we begin the discussion. Well, what do we believe? Mm-hmm. Did God elect us, choose us, which is what it means to set apart? Did God choose based upon criteria in us, or did he make that decision based upon the good pleasure of his will? Now, I would ask the reader or the listener to just honestly read through Ephesians 1 and listen to what Paul is saying, not what you want Paul to say, to honestly listen to what he's writing. That what he's writing is that the election is according to the will of God, the good pleasure of God, that God based upon his own criteria internally, has made a choice. When both of the objects are not worthy, there's not a good choice, there's not a worthy object, he put his faith upon um, someone that didn't merit it. That's the unconditional election part. That's what grace means. That's what grace is about. Yes. yes. You yeah. know, uh, I'm the late great, uh, late great. <laughs> I think of the planet late great planet Earth. Earth. Okay. <laughs> the late R.C. Sproul. Although R.C. Sproul was a great brother. Um, yes. He hit me with these things when he was hit, talking on the radio uh, years ago um, in his program, and he says, um, "What makes the difference between you, uh, a saint, and the person who does not come to Christ? Are you smarter than they are?" Are you more humble than they are? And I think most of you Christians would instinctively say, no, I'm not smarter than the non-believer. No, I'm not more humble than the other unbeliever. Well, then what makes the difference? If the difference is found in you, then like what Russ said in an earlier program, is that you get the glory for that. God doesn't get the glory for the difference between you and the unbeliever. The difference between you and the unbeliever is made in you in that view, and you're in heaven because of you. Ultimately, mm-hmm. so many things, and I'm maybe shifting the discussion here just a little bit. But so many uh, things in, li- in just in life in general, but and particularly in Christian doctrine in our in our uh, Christian belief, so many things depend on where you begin. What, what is what's the foundation that you're building on? What what are the assumptions? Particularly, what are the assumptions that you're building on? that you bring to the Bible. And foundations are just so important. And just as by way of illustration, there are a lot of very creative architects in the world. In fact, there are, there are architects who you would even consider to be artists, you know, fam- famous architects like a Frank Lloyd Wright or, or a, a Geary today. 
um, who designed these exotic buildings with, with and particularly Frank Gehry today, these exotic buildings with these very strange shapes. Um, if you've ever seen photographs or perhaps been to the, there's a famous art museum in Bilbao, Spain designed by Geary that uh, just this exotic shape of a, a building, very creative. But I can tell you there's one part of that building that's not exotic at all. It's the foundation. They didn't fiddle with that. It, I, 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 I wasn't there when they made it, but I can guarantee you that foundation is very basic and it's constructed of the most solid and most basic and most simple materials. Same with theology. Regardless of where I, well, I shouldn't, I don't really don't mean regardless of where you build because that, that's going to matter too, but you don't fiddle with the foundation. And where you arrive when we talk about the doctrine of election, and, and as Russ is saying a moment ago, everybody has to do something with the doctrine of election. Where you arrive is going to depend on where you begin. And if you don't begin with the total helplessness, of human beings. If you begin with the idea that, well, there's really something good in us that can, can seek out God and find our way to God, and, you know, we're really not that bad after all. If you begin there, you're going to end at a bad place. You're, 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 you're going to end with something less than the gospel. Now, tomorrow we're going to come back to some of why this matters, um, and I do think this really does matter practically in the details of life. So I, I hope that you come back tomorrow and, and listen to this. Um, but why does God, how, how does God choose his people? And really what we're saying is that God chooses them based upon his own good pleasure, his own graciousness. Why does God love me? Because God loves me. Amen. And that's a yes. wonderful place to rest. That's a wonderful place to end um, in the Christian life. Amen. Well, you've been listening to the Gospel for Life. We hope that you tune in tomorrow. And if you've missed any of these broadcasts, just subscribe to our podcast. Just type in The Gospel for Life. We'll see you next time. 